We're going to continue on our weekly Scripture reading, and we completed 1 Peter last week, so we're going to move into 2 Peter this week. We're going to look at 2 Peter chapter 1, and this is indeed such a great passage of Scripture. So it says, it reads as follows, verse 1, Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desires." For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall." For in this way there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in in the truth that you have. I think it right, as long as I am in this body, to stir up by way of reminder since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. And I will make every effort so that after my departure you may be able at any time to recall these things. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty." For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very uh, voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. Until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And so now I'd like to just say a quick word to the, to the moms in the room. We love you guys. We love you ladies, forgive me. We love our dear sisters, and um, praise God, praise God for godly moms in this room. For uh, those of us who have had just a a good nurturing mother, uh, we understand the blessing of that, to be able to be in that place where we're able to do, uh, do that. Not me, we, not me, obviously, but speaking for the ladies in general, I'm so grateful for my own wife as I see the way that she pours her life out and loves our two little daughters and cares for them and the example that she sets. And uh, what, a, what a blessing that is. And that is all God's doing. It's God's design. It's God's creation. And God has instituted that, blessed that, and uh, I just praise God for the, for the moms here and spiritual moms too. Uh, because I have had spiritual mothers, 
in my life that God has used in ways that even my own mom, physical mom, has not uh, cared for me. And so that is so crucial, and I thank God that He gives us spiritual mothers as well. And I'm grateful for my mother-in-law, Joanne Duncan. She's amazing. As far as mother-in-laws go, she's the best. And so, uh, you know, praise God. Praise God for mother-in-laws, stepmothers, adopted mothers, spiritual mothers. It's, it's from God, and He is good, and it's a gift. And we just want to say, mothers, we love you. And pray that today you would really be celebrated and honored as you deserve. You deserve more than one day out of the year. Let's just say that. Uh, but for what it is, we're, uh, we're grateful that there is this day when hopefully you get showered with blessing and love and support and encouragement. So if I may, I would love to pray for the moms right now. So if you would join me in prayer. Father God, we're just so delighted, so delighted for how good you are to us and your, your amazing wisdom, God, as you created man and woman, humanity, you instituted the covenant marriage relationship between one man and one woman, and with that, the, uh, the awesome privilege of bearing children and multiplying and filling the earth, God, as you had commanded so long ago, and here we are today. And uh, we praise you. And so we thank you for mothers, and we thank you for the care, the love, the sacrifice, the nourishment, everything that comes with that. And I just pray for the moms today. Bless them, Lord. Encourage them. May they just be so overcome with peace and with joy, with gratitude. And uh, I know that for the young moms, it is not easy. It's very difficult. I see that as a young father. I have a front row seat to that one. And so I ask for a special blessing over the young moms and even the brand new moms in the room. Lord, how sweet it is to see that, Lord, and to be able to um, even be dedicating these uh, babies to you, Lord God. And so pray for strength for the young moms and refreshment this day. And I just pray over all of the moms, spiritual moms, uh, as well as I have said, stepmothers, mother-in-laws. And so we give you glory, Father, and uh, we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen and an amen. All right. Let me pray again. Father, thank you so much for this amazing text of Scripture. I dare not enter into this time without first seeking your face and asking your blessing upon this, this time, Lord, as we open the, the pages of Scripture and consider this amazing text, Lord, as it chronicles for us the betrayal, the, the suffering, the crucifixion of our Lord and Savior, truly this is holy ground that we tread upon. And so, Father, I pray that we would reverence you this day that you would be hallowed here, that, Jesus, we would make much of your accomplishments, much of your sacrifice for us, and we recognize that, Lord, this is the ultimate display of love. All of human history was pointing forward to this moment when you would pay such an awesome price to restore, to reconcile, to redeem humanity. And so, uh, thank you, thank you, thank you, Father, for recording this for us and for preserving it for us. Thank you above all that this is actually true, these things actually happen, that we stand here today alive in Christ because of it. And so, we give you praise and honor. Please bless this time. Please use me to be a minister of truth and encouragement uh, to your people. Would you illumine the Scriptures to us and open our understanding so that we would be forever changed in light of these realities, and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. The last couple of weeks, I've been talking about the high priestly ministry of Jesus Christ, so I won't belabor that again today, but we talked about how Jesus prayed as the high priest for his people, for us, and then Jesus, as the high priest, he gave himself to be our sacrifice, which was totally different, revolutionary. The high priest would offer sacrifices, but of course the high priest was never himself the sacrifice, but Jesus is. Jesus, our great high priest, 
became the sacrificial lamb. You remember when in the story of Abraham and Isaac, he was told to sacrifice his son there on the mountain, and he was going to do it in faith to God, but right as the knife was about to drop, an angel intervened. This was obviously a, a, a test. We understand this. Abraham, as the father of faith, his faith was tested greatly on a number of occasions. But God said that he himself would provide a sacrifice. He himself would provide a sacrifice. He would provide himself a sacrifice. And in that, you can hear the very prophetic language that Christ himself, God would provide himself, God would be sacrificed for us. And that is what we see today in John chapter 19 as we consider these most holy and precious realities. And so last week, we saw that Jesus had already been betrayed by Judas, betrayed with a kiss, abandoned by the disciples, that he was arrested, and he was taken off to Annas' house, who had been the high priest. And Peter followed at a distance, but he was eventually called out, and you remember what he did. He denied even, know, even knowing Jesus three different times. And uh, just as Jesus said, it would happen, and he, the rooster crowed, and he realized what had happened, and he went out weeping bitterly. Well, we were introduced to Pilate. We'll talk more about him in a moment. And Pilate really wanted to let Jesus go, but the people didn't want Jesus to be let go. And so Pilate said, it's customary for me to hand over someone to you at this time each year, time of the Passover, so here's Barabbas. And the people said, you can, he said, you can either have Jesus or Barabbas released to you, and they called for Barabbas to be released and for Jesus to be crucified. And so that's where we left off, and so with that, we pick up in verse 1 of chapter 19, and it says, Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. So as I had said already, it was pretty obvious that Pilate really did not want to hand Jesus over to be executed, to be crucified. So we need to consider a little bit about Pilate at this point. Now, it's interesting to note that throughout much of history, critics of the Bible didn't even believe that there was an actual Pontius Pilate who ever lived. Now, of course, we read of him in the Scriptures, and there were other historians who spoke about him. But critics of the Bible said there's no external evidence, no archaeological evidence that such a man ever existed. Until 1961, in Caesarea in Israel, they found a two-by-three-foot placard with the name Pontius Pilate uh, engraved in it. And it said, of Tiberius, Pontius Pilate, who was uh, a prefect or a governor there in Israel at that time. And so there it is. And uh, it was so cool to see that, to stand in that place. And, of course, the Bible is accurate, always accurate. Sometimes it takes archaeology a little bit of time to catch up to it. But archaeology doesn't prove the Bible. The Bible stands alone. It is, it is literal. It is accurate. It is inspired. It is sufficient. It is authoritative. And, of course, the more discoveries that are made archaeologically, they just prove to to demonstrate the validity of the Bible more and more. Well, this Pontius Pilate was an interesting guy. So as I said before, the thing about Rome, they would come in, they would conquer, but they would allow different places to continue to, to function as normal with their religious practices and even governance to a certain degree. But they would have to pay tax, tribute to Rome, and you know, other, other things like that. And so Pilate was a governor at this time. Pilate was known to be a very bloodthirsty man and very antagonistic against the Jews in particular. So he was pretty hated by the Jews there. He was a very ambitious man, of course. That was uh, a very highly esteemable attribute, uh, self-promotion, um, ambition rising in the ranks. 
And so this was Pilate, and he was governing at this time, and he would come into Jerusalem at this time because this was the time of the Passover. Now, this is helpful for us to consider this. What happened in the Passover in Exodus? Well, the people were in bondage to Egypt, and God came in through Moses and set the captives free. They were delivered from the harsh bondage of Pharaoh there in Egypt, this miraculous uh, this miraculous victory was given to them, and they were rescued out of that land. And so when they would gather and celebrate the Passover, you could understand there was a very nationalistic kind of fervor that took place, and they remembered when God had delivered them from their oppressors. And so you can imagine that the people that were very angry with Rome and had great disdain for the situation that they were in would get really hyped up and pumped up, and there was a lot of volatility, and they were really on edge in Israel and on Jerusalem at this point. And one thing Rome was very careful about was trying to make sure that there were no uprisings, that the people wouldn't try to throw the yoke of Rome off and rise up against Rome. And so they'd have to really step up security, and Pilate would have to go here to Jerusalem at this time just to make sure that everything was kosher, that everything was calm and cool, if you will. And then this, we see the religious leaders come to Pilate with this very controversial figure, Jesus Christ. And by many, he was seen as probably a, uh, a leader who, well, obviously that's what the people hoped for. They hoped, they didn't really understand the salvation of sins, that whole aspect. They were looking for the Messiah to come and to restore them back to their uh, original glory, right? And so Rome would look at Jesus and see that. That's what they would think is going on here. This guy is a religious zealot, kind of a leader, and he's going to lead a rebellion against Rome and on behalf of the Israelites. And so this puts Pilate in this interesting position. There's an interesting dynamic going on here. And Pilate has to be very mindful of that, and so he's going to bow, he's going to bend because he's going to be manipulated severely because of this dynamic that's happening here. And so with that, let's go ahead and uh, move forward. Now, let me just say this. Pilate had Jesus flogged. Now, why he did this, it's pretty clear he didn't want to kill Jesus. He didn't want to execute Jesus. So the thinking probably went that he would have Jesus beat into an inch of his life, just short of death, and that maybe the people would be appeased by this. If Jesus were scourged severely, and this is, you guys probably have seen the Passion of the Christ, and they would have this handle with leather phrase on it with lead balls attached to the end with bones and, and other little shards of sharp objects attached to it. So when you would get whipped with it, it would dig into your flesh and tear your flesh, tear it completely open. And it was about as horrible as you could imagine. And they would whip you X amount of times and uh, up to the point of death. And a lot of times people didn't survive scourgings. They wouldn't even make it through the scourging to the cross, as it were. And so that's what Pilate does. He, he has him scourged. They mock him. They put the thorns on his head. They put him in pur a purple robe because that was the color of royalty. And the Romans here, the soldiers are mocking him, king of the Jews, and then they're striking him, smacking him. I mean, can you, just the humiliation here, just the absolute demonic disdain that they have for the Son of God here, for Jesus Christ. You consider the Creator of all things, the Maker and Creator, came into His own creation, as Pastor Dan said last week, and then is mocked, abandoned, betrayed, tortured, scourged, slapped, His beard was ripped out. We're told that His appearance was so marred He didn't even look like a man. He was unrecognizable didn't even look like a human being anymore. And so we see this beginning to take place even now. So, verse 4, Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. 
So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the people and the purple robe. And Pilate said to them, Behold the man. So Pilate is putting Jesus on display. He says, Look, I find no guilt in the man, but here he is, tattered and torn, broken, bruised, bloodied, beard ripped out, face all swollen. Uh, just absolutely torn to shreds by the ruthless hatred and hands of sinful men. Yet, Pilate says, I find no guilt in him. He's without guilt. He's guiltless. And then he prays Jesus out there and says, Behold the man. Now, this is obviously meant to, there, there's irony here. It seems as if what Pilate is saying is, this is the guy, okay? This is the guy that you're saying is the king. This is the guy that you're claiming is a threat to your religious institutions and your, your leadership structures. This is the guy that stands before you right now. He is no threat to you whatsoever. Behold the man, the man that you claim is the king. The reality is Jesus is the man. Jesus is the man. Jesus, perfectly innocent and holy, who gave his life. He loved people. He served people. He taught. He preached. He, he uh, laid his life down in so many different ways. He was totally innocent, altogether good, and yet he came to endure such, such vicious treatment from the hands of hostile sinners and rebels. And he did it. He went into this thing without any wavering. His face was set to the cross. Nothing could deter him. Nothing would cause him to stop short. Even when he had all of heaven's resources available, he could have called down legions of angels. He could have obliterated everybody in sight with just a word. He didn't do it. He went to the cross all the way steadfastly in love. What kind, what kind of man is this? This is, this is a true man. This is the God-man. Indeed, He is God fully, but He is man fully. To be able to bear the full weight of sin without actually sinning and succumbing to it, the full weight of temptation, I should say, rather, without succumbing to it and entering into sin. What kind of man is this? That's a true man. He indeed was a man. Verse 6, when the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, crucify him, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. And the Jews answered him, we have a law and according to that law, he ought to die because he has made himself the Son of God. Now, Pilate says, look, if this is what you want, then you just go do it yourself. Now, there's a little bit of mocking even in this from Pilate because the reality is they can't do it themselves. They're not allowed. Uh, sometime earlier, Rome took away their right for capital punishment, and that was a huge deal. As I have heard it explained a number of times, that was something that really the, the Israelites, they felt like they had some level of autonomy as long as they were able to, to do that. But once that was taken away from them, they really were just at the, at the total control of Rome. And so they had to come to Pilate. Now, they say that we have a law, and according to that law, he's worthy of death. This would be blasphemy laws blasphemy laws, and they would say that he claims to be the Son of God, and so he should be stoned for that, right? But we're not allowed to kill him, so he has to be in violation of Rome's law in order to deserve execution here. And so they're really trying to twist Pilate's arm to make him succumb to their will so that Pilate would do for them what they cannot do. They can't put Jesus to death in this way. But this also has very prophetic significance to it as well, which we will talk about in a moment. And so, verse 8, when Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid, having heard that, that Jesus claimed to be the Son of God. 
So verse 9, he entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it has been given to you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. So Pilate is afraid even, and he, Matthew tells us that Pilate's wife had actually had a dream about Jesus, and she was greatly disturbed, and she came to her husband and said, look, leave this righteous man alone. Leave this innocent man be, for I have been greatly troubled in a dream because of him. And so Pilate here is, he's in a real pickle. He's in a real situation, and he does not want to do this. And so he takes Jesus in privately and says, okay, who are you? Who are you? But Jesus does not answer him a word. And of course, that is consistent with Isaiah 53. As a lamb led to the slaughter or to its shears, he opened not his mouth. He wasn't there to defend himself. He wasn't there to try to get himself out of this situation. He was trusting himself completely and totally to the one who judges righteously, his father. And so then Pilate says, look, do you not know that I could have you crucified? Then Jesus speaks up for the glory of God and says, you have no authority. You can do nothing unless God allows you. And that is a great comfort even to us because the same is true for us. If you are in Christ and you're in the Father's hands, nothing can happen to you that God doesn't allow. And so you are in the safe hands of God. He is our ultimate authority and king. And whatever he allows is for our good and for his purposes and for his glory. So just like Jesus, we have to trust ourselves to the one who judges right, righteously. Our Father is good. He is just. He is always right and loving. And uh, whatever he allows into our lives or to befall us is for his own good purposes and our glory. And he allowed this to befall his own son for our good and for his own glory. The very thing that is happening for Jesus right now was according to God's perfect will so that we could be saved, so that we could be set free and have eternal life. Amen? Praise God. Jesus says, however, make no mistake, those who have handed me over to you, their guilt will remain. They will answer for this. This was all part of God's divine plan. It was all a part of God's eternal purpose and decree for us to be saved, for Christ to suffer and to die at the hands of these rebels, and they will absolutely be accountable for what they did. And so Jesus says, make no mistake, my vindication shall come, and those who have handed me over have the greater sin. Verse 12, from then on Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement, and in Aramaic it's called Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. And he said to the Jews, Behold your king! And they cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. Now this is the height of hypocrisy. It is mind-boggling here. And this is full-blown manipulation. And they tell Pilate, Look, if you release this man, you're no friend to Caesar. You're not loyal to him because they're trying to put Jesus forth as this king who would oppose Caesar. And they go so far as to say, we don't have any other king but King Caesar, as it were. Now, this is amazing because you may recall that the religious leaders came to Jesus to test him, and they said, you know, we're, we're under this Roman occupation, and we have to pay tribute to them. What do you say about that? They wanted to trap Jesus. Because if Jesus says we ought to pay, then of course the people would be upset about that. But if he says we shouldn't pay, then Rome would have reason to rise up and, and come after him. What did Jesus say? 
He said, give me a denarius whose inscription is on it. And they said, Caesar. And what did he say to that? He said, well, then render unto Caesar's that which is Caesar's and give to God that which is God's. And so there's a clear distinction here. You have Caesar who represents the world. He is the leader of the world, the image of the world, if you will. And then you have God, and the two are totally distinct one from another, obviously. And I've heard, I've heard it said, and I, I like this, um, the idea of give to God what is God's, whose image is on that coin. We're created in the image of who? To God, right? So whose image is on us? God. And so, of course, we have to pay dues. We have to pay taxes. You know, there's really two things that are certain in life, death and taxes. And so you've got you to gotta render unto Caesar the earthly due but we have to give to God what God ultimately deserves, and that is all of us, all of our lives, right? And so now all of a sudden they're turning it around and they're like, we're faithful to Caesar. We hail Caesar. And if you let this man live, you oppose Caesar. Now, again, Pilate had been making so much trouble for himself and how ruthless and barbaric he had been towards the Jews, it had already been handed down to him from Rome that he needed to slow his roll and settle down a little bit. So he was already kind of put on, uh, put on alert, if you will. And so the, the dynamics here, the tension here, it's, uh, it's very difficult for him to navigate this. And what he is ultimately functioning by here is the fear of man. That's what's going on here. Fear of man, people-pleasing. Now, if you're afraid of man, if you're afraid of man, you're, gonna, you're not going to be willing to do the things that you ought to do. If you're a, a people pleaser, oftentimes, you're going to do the things you shouldn't do. So the fear of man, people pleasing, is such a plight to us, and it's something that so many of us battle with and have been affected or manipulated by. And there are some who particularly struggle with this issue. And that's exactly what's going on here. Pilate knew, he knew good and well that this man was innocent. And he did not want to condemn him. He did not want to hand him over to a certain death. He even went so far as to have him beaten severely. That is compromise like no other in the sinful sense. He, that, it shouldn't have gone to that point. Not at all, but he was afraid of the people. He was afraid of their coercion and their manipulation, what it could potentially cost him. And so what did he do? He caved. He caved to the pressure of this mob and their religious hypocrisy and their sin and their evil, wicked ways, and he handed Jesus over. So what king do you serve? Who's your king? Caesar? Is Caesar Lord or is Jesus your Lord? Is He the one that you answer to? Is He the one that you live for? Or are you living for something else? Are you living for someone else? Jesus said that if my soldiers were of this world, they would fight for me, and I would not be handed over to you. But my people, we're of another kingdom. What kingdom are you a part of? What kingdom are you living and serving for? Is your motivation God? Do you fear God? Do you live for and love and adore and serve Him? Or are you serving somebody else, something else? Don't ever let this world, don't ever let the fear of what people might think about you coax you away from doing what you know you must do. Amen? Jesus said that if you're ashamed of me, I'll be ashamed of you in the coming of my Father and His holy angels. Paul says, I'm not ashamed. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation. We must not be ashamed of our Lord. We must not let what people think about us or would say about us or even what, could, what cost could even come. We can't allow that to ever dictate how we live our lives, the decisions that we make. Amen? The affections, the loyalties of our heart the devotion of our life, the things that we invest ourselves into because we serve one, King Jesus. Amen? No king but King Jesus. Amen? Amen. All right, well, verse 12. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, 
Okay, actually, I just read that. Sorry. Verse 16. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus and went out, and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which is in Aramaic called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus in between them. So they come off to this area called Golgotha. Now this is uh, in Hebrew, Golgotha, right? No, it's uh, Aramaic, excuse me. Do you all know what the Latin equivalent to this word is? Anybody know? Exactly, Calvary. Calvary. And so it's the place where Jesus was crucified. It was the hill there on which he was crucified. It was the terrain. They said it looked like a skull. And so Golgotha, uh, the place of the skull, that's where Jesus was crucified. And of course, we were in Israel not long ago, and we saw a place that they say could very well be that. And then right by there, there are some tombs. And so we got to go in there and that's one of the two places that they most believe Jesus was potentially uh, crucified and, and buried there in Israel. And so uh, there it is. Jesus is crucified. He is now hanging on this cross between these two thieves. So verse 16, or 19, I keep doing that. Verse 19, Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written in Aramaic and Latin and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the King of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am the King of the Jews. And Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. Now, oftentimes, that's, that's what they would do. They would put the inscription above the head of the person to lay out the charges that are against them. And this was a public display. It would happen in a place where passerbyers would see what's going on, and it would be a warning for people to, uh, to watch it. Don't play games with Rome because this, this could be uh, where you end up as well. So it was meant to send a message for sure. Now, having said that, about what that is there above Jesus, I think this is really interesting, very significant, and uh, I think Paul actually alludes to this just a little bit over in Colossians, and uh, let me see if I can find this. Okay, so in Colossians chapter 2, Paul says in verse 13, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and the authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. And so Paul kind of takes this picture, of course, above Jesus' head is this piece of paper that says the king of the Jews. But you know what was really on that piece of paper? Our sin, our debt. That's what was on that piece of paper. Jesus hung there on our cross, and the record of our sin, our debt, everything that we had done against a good and holy God was right there written on that piece of paper right above Jesus' head. It was nailed to the cross. And you know, you can just picture, Paul says, it's nailed to the cross, and you can see stamped right there on that, paid in full, paid in full at the cross, our debt, our sin, our wrongdoing, our transgression, all of it placed on Jesus on the cross, and that record of debt was paid in full, wiped away, cleansed. Amen? Amen. It was a substitutionary death. It wasn't a meaningless death. It wasn't a pointless death or a worthless death or a generic death. It was a very meaningful death. Jesus died for our sins on that cross, not as a victim. He gave His life for us willingly to the Father's plan. And our sin, past, present, and future, was put on Him there on the tree. Peter tells us that He bore our sins on His body on that 
cursed tree, and there our debt was paid in full, paid in full, so that we could receive Christ's righteousness, so that we could receive new life in Him and be found. Praise God. Praise God. That's what held Him there. It was my sin. It was your sin. That's what was actually on that piece of paper there above His head. But praise God, it was paid in full. Verse 23, when the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garment and divided it into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic, but the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. This is a fulfillment of Psalm 22, such a graphic depiction of the cross. If you aren't familiar with that chapter, you have to read it. There it talks about my hands and my feet, they pierced, they cast lots for my garment. It talks about his physical appearance on the cross. Incredible. And so here we see this literally happened in fulfillment of that which had been prophesied a thousand years earlier. Verse 25, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. Even there on the cross, Jesus is thinking about his mom. Isn't that incredible? The mother is there. She's weeping. Could you imagine that? The mother of Jesus is there at the cross watching all of this take place in absolute horror. And Jesus looks at her with pity, and he says the disciple whom he loved would be John, the guy that wrote this gospel. The apostle John was the only of the disciples that went to the cross there with Jesus. All of them took off. They scattered, but John the youngest of the disciples, the one whom truly Jesus loved, we're told, he uses that designation of himself, was there. And Jesus commends his, father, his mother into the care of this young disciple. Isn't that incredible? Isn't that amazing that even in this moment, Jesus really did fulfill the law. I mean, it is mind-boggling. It says, honor your father and your mother. Hanging on this cross, he was thinking about his mom. That is amazing to me. And so we're told that from that moment forward, she was under John's care. She, from that place, went on and lived with the Apostle John under his, his household. Verse 28, After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the Scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, So they put a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. And when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Now they had initially tried to give him this wine earlier. They had some kind of an agent that uh, it was some kind of concoction they would give you that would actually serve to numb the, the, the excruciating pain even just a little bit. And uh, Jesus refused it. Remember, they tried to put it on his mouth and he wouldn't drink it. And I've heard people say that's because he, he went to the cross to experience the fullness of God's wrath and suffering for us. And he refused even any kind of numbing agent. But now, he's about to give up his spirit. He's about to die. It is finished. He says, I thirst. Even there, I mean, you just see his humanity hanging on this cross, beaten and battered. What does he say? I'm thirsty. And they give him the sour wine, and then he says the most glorious words, it is finished. He did everything that was necessary to fulfill the plan of salvation and redemption there on the cross. And then he gave up his own spirit. He gave up his own spirit. He said, I have the ability to lay my life down and to take it back up again. And that's exactly what he did even on the cross. So verse 31 
Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. So as you have probably heard by now, when they were on the cross, their feet were nailed to the cross, but the way they would be hanging, they, would, they couldn't breathe. So they couldn't breathe while hanging in that position, so they would have to push up with their feet against that nail to come up just a little bit to get a, a breath of air and then drop back down. And so this could go on for two or three days, and they would just be doing that continuously, pushing up to breathe and then falling back down on that cross. And so in order to expedite the death, they broke their legs, that's why, so that they would die from suffocation. And so they broke the two men's legs, they died, but they came to Jesus and he was already dead, they could tell. So they pierced his side with a spear, verse 33. When they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs, but one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness, his testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth that you also may believe. For these things took place that the Scripture might be fulfilled, not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another Scripture says, they will look upon him whom they pierced. In the Psalms, there was this prophecy that not one of his bones would be broken, which is in part why he couldn't be uh, handed over to death by the Jews because they would have stoned him to death and he would have had many broken bones. So it followed that Jesus had to be crucified he had to go under Roman crucifixion, and here we say, see that they didn't break Jesus' legs. They basically, just to make sure he's dead, they pierced him in the side, and water came out. That's a medical condition. It's a ruptured heart, and it fills up with a sack of fluid, and they punctured that sack, and blood and water came out. So he was dead, dead, okay? Some people have tried to say that he actually was just in a state of unconsciousness, so close to the point of death. He was taken down, put in a tomb, and the cold tomb, basically, he was resuscitated. No, no, no. The Romans, they were experts. They knew how to kill people, okay? They knew how to kill people. They knew when people were dead. And so Jesus was as dead as he could be, humanly speaking, and they knew it. And so, verse 38 and also, they will look upon him whom they pierce. That's a prophecy from Zechariah. They'll look upon him whom they pierce. They'll weep. They'll say, where did you get these wounds? And I'll say to them, I received them in the house of my friends. Amazing. This prophecy is fulfilled. Verse 38, after these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission, so he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. And so we have these two beautiful brothers, secret disciples, as it were, that wanted to pay honor and tribute to Jesus and to take down his dead body and to put it in the tomb. And um, it's kind of sad because these guys, uh, they weren't really trying to come out too openly about where they stood with Jesus because they too had fear, fear of man. But uh, hey... Credit to where it is due. This is a beautiful act of love and devotion that they did. And, of course, putting themselves out there to do such a thing, I think, pretty well communicated where they stood at this point. So, verse 41, Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So, because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. Now, this is a fulfillment of prophecy that he would be buried with the rich, Isaiah 53. So it was a borrowed tomb, and he was put in Joseph of Arimathea's tomb. And of course, we know that he would only be there for a few days. Uh, but even this was a fulfilled prophecy. So many explicit fulfilled prophecies took place at the cross and the crucifixion. It's amazing, absolutely amazing. 
And so it was. This was God's plan. God did this in love. God created the world good, but then the world, Adam and Eve sinned, plunged the world into sin, the curse ensued, and God purposed immediately that He was going to redeem, restore, and reconcile humanity back to Himself, and that He was going to do it through His Son, Jesus Christ. And here is the culmination of that plan as Jesus went all the way to the end. The King of glory humbled Himself all the way to the cross in love for us and out of obedience and for the glory of the Father. He's worthy of our praise. Amen? How can we then not lay our lives down for Him? How can we then not be living sacrifices for the One who loved us so, paid such a price, laid His life down at Calvary's cross for us? Amen? Amen. All right, let's pray. We love you, Jesus. We thank you. We love to sing of the cross, to sing of Calvary. But Lord, it didn't end there. You rose from the grave. And we get to look at that next week. And thank you for that. Thank you for that. You went into that tomb and you came back out alive. Victorious. Victorious. You are our conquering king. And there is no king but you, King Jesus. And one day you will return and set your throne up here on earth. And you will reign with an iron rod. You will reign in righteousness. And it is our joy and our delight. It is our privilege to give you even now the honor that you deserve as our King and to serve you with great loyalty and affection and devotion. So have your way, Lord, in our lives. Have your way. Be exalted. May you inhabit the throne of our hearts. And may we give you all that you are worthy of and even more. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. May he keep you. May He make His face to shine upon you. May He lift up your countenance. May He give you peace. May you go forth this week in the love and the grace and the power of God. May you be uplifted by this great love with which we have been loved in Christ, the one who gave His life away freely for us so that we would live in Him. In Jesus' name, God bless you.